0: Obviously, I'm not Shannon Anderson, Terry Morrison here. To read God's Word, you'll find it on page 8 of the bulletin. Please join me as I ask the Lord's presence in illumination. Father God, as you showed up in person to Abraham and brought the light of your promise to him again, show up in your fullness as much as we can handle In this room, in our hearts and minds, and especially in Pastor Mike, as he opens your word. We pray for your light to be in this room, in us, and in our ministries. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This is from Genesis 18, verses 16 through 33. Then the men set out from there, and they looked toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? No, for I have chosen him, that he may charge his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, How great is the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah, and how very grave their sin. I must go down and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me, and if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom, while Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham came near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not forgive it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, if I find Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will forgive the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered, let me take it upon myself to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Again, he spoke to him, suppose 40 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, oh, do not let the Lord be angry if I speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, "'I will not do it if I find 30 there.' He said, "'Let me take it upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there.' He answered, "'For the sake of 20, I will not destroy it.' Then he said, "'Oh, do not let the Lord be angry if I speak just once more. Suppose 10 are found there.' He answered, "'For the sake of 10, I will not destroy it.' And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place." The Word of the Lord. That's a pretty
1: good impersonation of Shannon, Terry. (laughs) Heather is passing out copies of the manuscript, and I'll say in advance that the manuscript is not as complete as I wanted it to be. I have been through 10 days. Not like any other 10 days I've been through um, with a lot of big gatherings at my house and meetings with bankers and realtors and stuff that I'm just not usually doing. So, But I did get a sermon out, and I do have something to say. i just going to put this where it's not going to distract me. I want you to have my full attention, and I want to have your full attention. I want the Word of God to be our focus in this amazing passage. In this morning's passage, we see something that we haven't really seen before. We see Abraham engaging in what we would normally call intercessory prayer. Prayer on behalf of other people. Now, Abraham did once say to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live in your sight. But in that case, I think Abraham was really Praying for his own interests. He doesn't always treat Ishmael very well. But here in the second half of Genesis 18, we see Abraham really going pretty far out on a limb to pray for other people as God threatens to judge Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham probably really doesn't have any understanding of what the consequences might be if he pushes God too far, but he's willing to take that risk. And I certainly want to look at the way Abraham intercedes on behalf of those two cities this morning. I think we can learn a lot from that, but I don't want to read this passage as something like a how-to manual for intercessory prayer, because the passage actually gives us something much better than that. It shows us how our prayer, our intercessory prayer, can and in fact must be shaped by our understanding of God's will and by our knowledge of God's character. And maybe that's enough. If we just stay with those two big ideas, our understanding of God's will, which is never going to be complete, and our knowledge of God's character, which may or may not always be accurate. But that's what this story focuses on, God's will and God's character. What do we mean when we say God's will? This story actually gives us And I love that about this story. It gives us two views of God's will. I could call them the inside view and the outside view, or the wide-angle view and the narrow-angle view. But if you look at the first section of the story, the very first time God speaks, you'll see, well, you'll actually notice that God speaks twice. The first time, it's basically God talking to himself. God's internal deliberation. We've seen that several times already in the book of Genesis. The very beginning. Let us make humanity in our own image, right? It happens again here. The narrative gives us a kind of a window into God's mind. And what do we see when we look through that window? Well, we see two things. First of all, we see God deliberating about whether he will tell Abraham what he is about to do. Will God... Now that Abraham is God's covenant partner, will God keep Abraham in the dark or will God let Abraham know at least some of the things about what God is up to in the world? So Abraham's the key to one of God's deepest purposes. God has chosen him to bring blessing to all the nations through him. And because of that, because of Abraham's key position and his exalted status as partner god is inclined to share with abraham what he is about to do and if you think about it we're in that situation too i mean that's what the bible is god telling us what god's doing in the world but there's something else worth paying attention to and something that gives more depth to this picture that is emerging in the narrative we get a deeper understanding here of why god chose Abraham. And I don't mean why so much as in what's the basis of God's choice? Was it some kind of foreseen righteousness? Theology, unfortunately, always gravitates towards those kinds of why questions. I think the better kind of why question is, what's the outcome God has in mind in choosing Abraham? Or anything, anyone, I mean. What is God after? What's the result for which God chooses people. Here's what it says in the text. I have chosen him that he may charge his children and their household and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. So that the Lord may bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. And if you if you know this story, you know it's leaning towards the judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah, where there is a tragic and victim-producing lack of righteousness and judgment uh, and justice among the members of the human race. It's curious, though, in this narrative, because this information that we get from God's first speech is really for us, the reader. It's not for Abraham. Abraham never hears the full internal deliberation that, that of, in God's mind. These words are preserved in the story to tell us what to listen for, to help us understand this day in the life of Abraham, Father Abraham, in the larger context of God's purposes for the whole human race we get something like the view from 10,000 feet or 30,000 feet here it doesn't tell us everything of course but it tells us more than it tells more than god tells abraham abraham by contrast let's move into the rest of the narrative abraham sees all of this from the ground level he doesn't get the inside wide angle view of god's will he gets the outside view or, or what what only what god tells him and what he hears And there's another speech. This time, God's speaking directly to Abraham, speaking out loud. And, And God is kind of sly here. Both Abraham and God are pretty sly in this narrative. God sort of dangles a hint about what he's planning. But Abraham still has to connect the dots. Here's what God says. Kind of like in passing. How great is the outcry from Sodom and Gomorrah, against Sodom and Gomorrah, And how very grave their sin. I must go down and see what they have done altogether. Sorry. See whether what they have done is altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. I'm going to go down and check it out and see if it's really as bad as I've heard. I hear the voice of victims crying out to me. And I'm going to go find out what's going on down there. Abraham gets this limited understanding of God's will. He doesn't get the whole shape of the thing, but he understands that things don't look very promising for Sodom and Gomorrah. And I don't know how much it factors in Abraham's thinking. The narrative doesn't tell us, but his nephew Lot lives there in Sodom and Gomorrah. But Abraham does not limit his intercession to Lot. He intercedes. He sees judgment coming, and he engages God. In fact, engages God in a way that's very intense and very daring. You can see it in the kind of language that he uses when he prays. You can see it in how far he's willing to push. And you can even see it in his posture. Very often when Abraham is in the presence of God, what does he do? He falls on his face. Here He's almost getting in God's face. He remains standing before the Lord. And after however much deliberation, he actually approaches God. He draws near to God. And he speaks in an amazingly confrontational way. Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away that place and not forgive it for the 50 righteous who are in it? That's pretty bold, but not nearly as daring and as kind of shocking as what Abraham says next. He comes pretty close to rebuking God. In in language that feels to me like it's almost on the edge of profanity or cursing or calling down curses, he speaks to God, and the English is actually pretty mild. Far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous fare the same way as the wicked do. That's not fair. That's not just. Far be it from you shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just. In Hebrew, it's a lot more intense than it sounds in English, almost shocking. The word halilah means something like defilement or a profaning of something that is sacred. So it's almost as if Abraham is saying to God, Shame on you if you do that. That would be like you blaspheming your own name, betraying your own character if you did a thing like that. And that's one of the keys to understanding this passage. Whether Abraham, underst- whatever he understands about God's purposes at that moment, and what kind of perspective he has them in. In his opinion, what he understands about what God is about to do and what he understands about God's character don't line up very well. It's not like you to do a thing like that. And Abraham's actually on to something important here. He does have a correct understanding or at least an intuition, at least a hunch about God's character. And that's the basis of his prayer. That's why even though Abraham comes on so strong in his intercession and gets in God's face, there is no negative reaction from God. How dare you speak to me that way, Abraham? In fact, God mildly agrees to what Abraham is asking. And I'm not sure if Abraham expects the depths of it But it only confirms Abraham's hunch about God's character and deepens his understanding of this character and ours when we listen to what comes next. Pay attention to this. God doesn't just agree to spare the 50 if he finds them. He says, if I find in that city 50 righteous people, I will forgive the whole place for their sake. What does that tell us? about God. It tells us that God is not only just, God is also merciful. And in some ways, those things are in tension. Our theology wrestles with those paradoxes and tensions in our understanding, our imperfect understanding of God's glorious nature. Can God be merciful and also just? Can God be gracious but also jealous? Can God be loving but also wrathful, I don't want to try to sort out those paradoxes of God's character into the pigeonholes of systematic theology. There's a place for systematic theology. I'm not despising it, but it's not always adequate to the givens of Scripture. I just want to follow this extraordinary narrative as it brings us into and through this paradox of God's justice and God's mercy. And just as a kind of a note, um, I'm preaching a little bit through visual art in this Advent season. And I wanted, you might notice that this is a little darker and a little more complex than it was last week. I wanted to get this notion of the fire of God's judgment into this, but also the idea of the fiery pillar through which God led His people, and even in the darkness of judgment, there is the light of hope. And there's still that DNA mo- molecule is still buried in there. There's still this hope of the birth of a son to Abraham, and I, to Abraham and Sarah. And there's still the hope of the birth of an offspring who will bring blessing to all the nations. But the key to this whole passage, back to the passage, is in the dialogue and in the way Abraham explores the depths of God's mercy. How far is God willing to go in that mercy that's essential to God's character? It would be a misunderstanding and an injustice to God to think that in this extraordinary conversation with God, Abraham is actually pushing God into a place that God is not willing to go. It would be more accurate to say that God is drawing Abraham into this exploration of the depths of God's mercy, into a deeper understanding of who this covenant partner is that he's thrown his lot in with. Abraham is kind of sly, but God is always shrewder and more sly. And when I say Abraham is sly, here's what I mean. I don't know, if, I heard a few chuckles when Terry was reading, but once Abraham has established God's character, that he's just but also merciful, that God will not punish the righteous along with the wicked. In fact, God will spare a whole city full of wicked people for the sake of just a few righteous people. Once he's established that, Abraham leverages that. And he does it in a kind of sneaky way. As if God's not going to notice. He says, okay, 50. That's good. Thank you. But, but let me ask you this. Let me, let me take it upon myself to, to just speak one more time. What if it's maybe almost 50? I mean, what if it's close to 50, but, but just five of those 50 are missing? Would you really destroy that whole city because of those five people? That's kind of sneaky. Abraham is not fooling God, though. God says, okay, 45. I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Back to Abraham. Okay, good, good. 45, thank you. Let's go with that. You said 45, right? Maybe we can think about the 40 and not the 5. What if there's only 40? For the sake of 40, I will not destroy it. 40, okay, yes, yes, please don't be mad, but what if it's only 30, I think this is the biggest step, actually, the step from 40 to 30, Abraham's getting bolder, leaping by tens now instead of fives, taking it down to 75% or to 67%, he's not counting percentages, But he's pushing. And again, let's not imagine Abraham is actually taking God to a place God is unwilling to go. Abraham is discerning and learning how large God's mercy is. And Abraham, as we follow the conversation through its kind of formalized, polite, don't be mad, let me speak again, Abraham gets it all the way down to 10. Perhaps the size of just one extended family for whose sake the whole city could be spared. Just like Abraham's family is a family for whose sake all the nations of the earth could be blessed. If only such a family could be found because God says, for the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And sadly, if you know the story, you know that the ten righteous people cannot be found in Sodom. And God even goes beyond his promise because he spares Lot and his immediate family, and they, only they, escape God's judgment because God is also merciful. But let's stay here in the narrative. The last part of this morning's narrative leaves us with, I think, one subtle clue to understanding this passage, and it's kind of just reinforcing what I've been saying. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham. This was not and never was Abraham's conversation. Even when we think we're inter when we're initiating the intercession with God, God is already always disposed to hear our prayers. And sometimes God is the one who draws us in The prayer and God is pleased to bring about his purposes through our prayer. So, Abraham might think he's somehow cajoling God into being true to God's own nature and even pushing the envelope on God's nature a little bit, but that's not what's really going on. The truth is, God is educating Abraham further, not just about God's purposes, but about God's character, and eventually. About his place in the unfolding of God's purposes. This narrative isn't really about prayer per se. It's about how prayer fits into God's purposes and is based on an understanding of God's character. But the deepest question this narrative raises is this one, I think How far does God's mercy really extend? This narrative probes pretty far into that, but not nearly far enough. There are many ways in which the story of Abraham foreshadows the gospel, the birth of Isaac, the birth of Jesus. The horror of the sacrifice that God asks of Abraham, as we'll get to in a couple of weeks. And the horror of the sacrifice of God's own son. But in this text, I want to focus on just one prefiguring of the gospel and of the incredible extent of God's mercy that the gospel demonstrates. By the end of today's story, we see that God is willing to spare a whole city full of wicked people for the sake of 10 righteous people. As the story goes on, we learn that there are not 10 righteous people to be found in Sodom and Gomorrah together. And in fact, As the Bible goes on, we come to understand that there are not ten righteous people in any city, anywhere, in the whole history of the world. Among the whole human race, there has only ever been one righteous person, Jesus Christ. And this is the good news. This is the gospel. For the sake of that one righteous person, God is willing to spare the whole world, not to excuse and give us carte blanche to keep on sinning, but to spare and to save anyone who turns to God in faith and repentance and to ask sincerely for God's mercy. And I want to ask you this question in closing. What does that say about God's purposes for us? How do we fit into that wide-angle view that the gospel gives us into God's intention, intentions for the human race, which we only ever understand imperfectly. But I think I can say these four things about our calling as God's covenant partners. We are called to be salt and light. I think, in other words, if we understand Scripture for the sake of Christ's people in the world... And for the sake of the unsaved world, God is willing, a merciful God is willing to withhold judgment, to be patient with sinners, to wait and to hope and to seek the lost. We're called to be salt and light in the sense of a sort of preservative and illuminating presence in the world. Second, we're called to be intercessors. And I think Christians often fail in that spectacularly. We're very good at judging the world, condemning the world, analyzing what's wrong. And of course we have to know, but that probably more than it does should lead us towards pleading for God to be merciful. I mean, I'll I'll tell you a place where I struggle with this. I do not admire Donald Trump in almost any sense, but I pray for him because he's a human being and, you know, for, for a, because God commands me to and because it's the right thing to do. And I pray sincerely, not with rolling my eyes, but from my heart. And, you know, we all have people we don't admire. Um, some people probably have felt the same way about Barack Obama. There are things that not to like about Barack Obama, too, and his presidency, but this is not about politics. This is about humanity. So we're called to be sincere intercessors, even to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. Third, we're called to be witnesses to this mercy. I think that's beyond dispute, but prayer and mission go hand in hand. If There is a merciful God who wants to spare the lost. And the lost will only be saved if they hear and embrace the gospel. We better not stand silent. We better tell people about this great salvation that God has prepared in the sight of all people. That's the song of Simeon. Fourth and finally, God calls us not just to be hearers of his word and understanders of his purposes, but to be doers of his word and to enact his purposes. Our privilege as members of a new covenant is both to know and to do God's will, both to understand and to embody God's character. And let that understanding of God's will and God's character shape our living, as well as our praying. And that is how God brings about his kingdom through us, his people. It's all there in the Great Commission. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, says Jesus after his resurrection. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And to this he adds this great promise of his forever Emmanuelness. "I am with you always, to the very end of the age. This is the word of the Lord.